So, we've been practicing together for pretty much a day, engaging and sitting and walking and standing, and it can be quite a journey, just 24 hours since we got here, or a little bit longer. It can be a whole range of different experiences that arise, and perhaps for many, sometimes questions about uh, what's going on and what makes sense in this context. And I'd like to speak a little bit this evening about the, the kind of the a sort of overview framework of the Buddha's teachings. I think as human beings we're essentially concerned with the question of our existence as to what really contributes to happiness and what leads away from that. We may understand or describe happiness in different ways with different language, what that actually means, that sense of what we might also call perhaps fulfillment, meaning, sense of well-being. It's one of those interesting things, isn't it? We, we sort of know what it is when it's not there, happiness, but when we try and exactly define it, it's not always straightforward. And it seems to me that the Buddha's teachings are essentially concerned with this question of, of human happiness and in the way it's sometimes framed, of course, the absence of human happiness, which we talk about as, as suffering, as um, that condition that is difficult or hard to bear for us. And this is, this is something of interest to, I think, all of us, understandably, naturally. This condition of our heart and our mind, the way we experience ourselves in our life, this is, this is something that we are concerned with, we are interested in, and yet we don't necessarily know. We haven't necessarily been shown or learned what it is that most deeply and profoundly contributes to our greatest well-being. I used to sometimes when I was in my early sort of time of engaging with the practice and it was still quite a unusual thing in most people's eyes and they would ask you know so so what what's it all about and to in a way to quite simply describe it I would sometimes say it's happiness training happiness training is what I'm engaged in what we could say we're engaged with here we sometimes think of happiness as something that you know we're kind of lucky if we get it and we're kind of unlucky if we don't and yet to frame it in that way, happiness training perhaps suggests, I think, usefully a way which we can understand the, the process, the situation, which is, oh, this isn't something that happens by accident. It's something that emerges or arises from certain conditions that we can actually orient, we can learn, we can direct our life towards the development of that which brings happiness. And to call it training, to talk about happiness training, also I think it's useful because rather than thinking it's about some particular experiences that we might have or might avoid, which is I think the common way to think about what would bring happiness is if I could have these kinds of experiences and if I could avoid those kinds of experiences, and we've probably all got quite sort of well-established lists that we've worked out by now of those things we'd like to 
have and those things we'd like to avoid. And of course, any two people might have quite different lists. In fact, we might have swapped some of the, you know, some of the things in one side of one person's list might be on the other side of somebody else's list. Um, and, uh, and so that way of thinking about what brings happiness makes us very dependent upon experiences that aren't actually in our control. If they were, of course, we'd have all successfully attained permanent happiness by now. Um, and if we have, then that's wonderful. Um, but mostly what I find when talking with people is this is an ongoing journey. And so in terms of the, the Buddha's teachings, he pointed to three areas of our lives, three areas of our experience in which there is room, we could say, for and a need or an invitation to engage in a process of development, in a process of training that we could call happiness training. And um, I, I think of these as really the foundations of, of happiness, the foundations of fulfillment and well-being in its most abiding and authentic sense. And these three areas could be simply described as goodness, presence and wisdom. Or in the, the language that the Buddha used, goodness we could talk about as dana and sila, which is generosity and non-harming. We talk about presence as this quality of samadhi or samatha, which is gatheredness and collectedness or concentration in meditation practice. And wisdom is the, uh, the Buddha spoke of it as panya, as understanding, this capacity for seeing and penetrating into what's, what's true and authentic about our experience and how we may need to see it and view it in order for it to be something that we use in a, in a way that brings happiness and well-being, to understand our life as it is. And so giving attention to these three areas of life, this is really the foundations. These are the foundations for happiness. And I'd like to just speak a little bit about them because they're part of what, and essentially they are the core of what we're engaged in here. We, um, in the opening of the retreat, and Gavin spoke last night about ethics, about precepts, about the, um, the five guidelines of training. And these are about non-harming, about understanding that our actions have an impact on others. And that our happiness and the happiness of others is bound up in those actions. And that the intention to refrain from causing harm is an essential component for happiness. If we notice the kinds of things our minds get caught up in, end up lost in stories about from past or fantasies about from future, often it's to do with the things where we have either been impacted by others or we ourselves have impacted others. That's one whole realm of experience where we find ourselves entangled. And so... When we, when we look at this, when we see that the reflection we might come to, the understanding that the Buddha invited us to contemplate, was to see that when we act out of, out of a sort of a self-centered or selfish interest that disregards our impact on others, or disregards the needs and the circumstances of others, it's actually something painful to us. It's actually something that undermines our own well-being. And so there's a 
So there's the natural support for our well-being, our own well-being, not just the well-being of others when we make it a foundation for our life to, to so far as we are able to refrain from causing harm. It actually brings well-being for ourselves. And the other element of goodness that's, that's here is a, a sense of, um, of generosity that as a practice for our life, a sense of generosity, of giving, of offering, is something that brings uplift, brings happiness. If we reflect on it, the times when someone has given something to us, or we, we have felt moved to freely give something to another, to offer something, whatever it might be, we may, if we reflect on those, recognize that there's something uplifted, something beautiful about that. And there's a simple, natural, and actually very deep and authentic happiness that comes from sharing. I'm struck by how whenever I see wild creatures, there's this thing that I remember from ever since I was really young, of wanting just to give them something, some food. And of course, we might know that um, for, for many creatures, it's best not to give them human food. It's not good for them, generally. Um, but nonetheless, that sense of wanting to give something, or you know, the, the little fluffy rabbits sort of bouncing around on the lawn that seem remarkably unafraid. And the sense of, oh, well actually they've got plenty of grass, but I just noticed that I'd be nice to give them something, and probably they'd run away if I tried to, but that sense of, oh, there's a natural human recognition, I think, that we have, that we partake of, that actually giving things makes us, sharing things makes us happy. And this is a really simple thing to practice. Part of what we do in a retreat is that we give ourselves to the practice. It's actually an expression of generosity as well as of, of courage and dedication. And this particular quality of, of, of giving is something that's a really useful orientation for much of what we do in practice. And to understand that the meditation practice we're engaged in is really founded on, it fi finds its, its ground and its support in this orientation that we we bring of both an intention of non-harming and a, and a willingness to share what we have. And so much of what's here is shared, the space that we have that's shared, the food that's offered and that we share, and the, the space and engagement of our practice, doing this together by coming and practicing by sitting in the hall, by walking back and forth as we do, or standing as we do, there's a way in which we're actually making an offering to each other. And it's part of what uplifts us. It's part of what brings a sense of well-being and happiness. And this, this is something that the Buddha recognized, as well as in itself bringing well-being, bringing a sense of uplift, it's also an essential foundation for meditation. To engage in meditation without a foundation, without a commitment to non-harming and to generosity, to a sense of sharing and to, in a way, caring, we could say. It starts to sound a bit sort of, sort of what, what's the word, a bit touchy-feely, isn't it? Sharing and caring. But, but interestingly, those are not accidental phrases in terms of what we might skillfully understand. The cultivation of our heart and mind, the training of our mind that we might do is dependent or is reliant upon this as a foundation. A basic sense of goodness, essentially. 
That doesn't mean that we're perfect at it. That doesn't mean we don't have plenty of room to learn and to grow in this department. But to just acknowledge that, just, oh, okay, that's part of what's here. You know, it's, it's difficult to have to share space with other people and all the ways we have to do it here. Sometimes sharing rooms, certainly, you know, bedrooms, certainly sharing bathrooms, showers, um, meditation space. And to do so as a sense of a, an act of offering, of generosity, can be really helpful. That sense of, oh, we're sharing something together with an intention to support our well-being and the well-being of those around us. And understanding that there's a, there's a real happiness that comes from this. Just simple, but nonetheless profound. And if we were to, to not have this foundation, the meditation practice wouldn't really be able to transform us in the way that it can. And so we have this foundation here for this retreat and for all retreats. So there's this quality of goodness, of non-harming and having a basic intention of non-harming and of generosity in life. And with this as a foundation we can engage in what we could call the training or the practice of presence, of what it means to develop, to, well first of all to begin to understand and to abide in, but then also to develop our capacity to be awake, to be conscious, to be sensitive in the midst of our life. It's like we see that the, the way we've been brought up for most of us, certainly for myself, certainly the way we are educated, trains our mind and our heart in a very particular kind of way that mostly suggests being able to accumulate and manipulate information is what's going to be most useful and important. To be able, you know, a lot of education, certainly mine, I don't know, maybe you had a better one, was about sort of accumulating information and then manipulating it, being able to use it. And of course, that, that's something really helpful. Um, none of us would have been able to get here without a certain amount of ability to, to get information and organize it and act on it. But there's another whole dimension to what our heart and mind are capable of, which is more to do with the capacity to be present and awake in our life. And the, the tendency that we notice when we come into a practice such as this, come into a retreat like this, whether this is the first time we're doing it, and for some of you this is the case, and even if we've been doing it for years and maybe decades, we see how strongly the mind is conditioned to want to move, to want to move away from one thing towards another. And that sense of kind of, um, kind of the encounter with our mind is, it's like we start to realize, oh, this mind, it has a mind of its own, almost. It doesn't just follow easily or quickly what, invitations we might give to it. We might say, mind, be quiet. And mind doesn't be quiet. It goes, why should I be quiet? Who said? Who, who thinks I should be quiet? I want to be noisy. I want to be busy. I want to jump from here to there. And sometimes 
when we when we come into meditation, this can be painful for us. So we can struggle with this, and it's really important to understand that our mind and its activity isn't accidental. That if we've given for much of our life free reign to the tendency of the mind to jump from here to there, to react to this and that, then just deciding that we'd rather it didn't for a little while so we could be calm and peaceful on retreat, it's not going to happen that way. It would be nice if it did, you know, if there was a button, if there was a special trick. You know, it's not that we're holding, holding out on you, we haven't told you the special trick, the special magic instruction which when we give it to you then suddenly it'll all go, ah, calm, peaceful, quiet, bliss. It's much more a process of engaging with the activity of our mind and seeing, okay, what can I bring to that? Part of what we bring is our intention, the intention to notice what's happening and when the mind gets drawn off into some pattern or place of thinking, of past, of future, of reacting, of resisting, of fantasizing or nostalgia or whatever it might be, that we just notice, oh, this is what's happening now. Okay, having noticed that, can I turn back to the body? Can I come back to this field of more immediate experience that we can encounter through the body? Being present is not something limited to feeling our body or being with our feet or our breathing or the posture and standing or sitting or walking. But what we find is that because the body is more slow moving than the mind, and because there's an aspect of body that's always just here and now. This body doesn't arise in the future. We can't find our body in the past. When we were actually in touch with the felt experience of body and whatever its expression is, in that moment we're also in touch with the present moment. We're also here. And so we use that as a foundation to begin with because it's more accessible and it's more in a way, slow-moving than many of the other experiences, at least as we initially encounter it. And over time, of course, the practice of presence, of mindfulness, of being sensitive and conscious of our experience opens up to include, and needs to open up to include, the full range of our experience. But if we try to do that at the beginning, we tend, most of us, unless we've done a lot of training and worked really hard with this, we tend to get lost in it. The multiplicity and the complexity and the, the, the way in which it's kind of fluid and changing makes it hard for us to find some ground. And so this body is a place to reference, to return to, engage in. And to understand that it's it's a process of coming back that we could really benefit from bringing kindness to. The tendency can be, because we seem to often imagine that it's our mind that's doing all of this and therefore it should do what we tell it to. And when we ask our mind to be quiet and it isn't, we start to get irritated. Or where the places it goes we find them sometimes scary or painful or confusing and we don't like that. I mean it's interesting isn't it? How for many people, and maybe this isn't your experience, there's a kind of a not always fully acknowledged longing for this mind to be quiet. I mean, is there anyone here who hasn't noticed that they've had the occasional thought, oh, I really wouldn't mind if my mind was a bit quieter, maybe even shut up for a little while? It's like it's interesting, isn't it? That activity, that mental activity, at some level is distressing or uncomfortable for us. 
much as we at the same time might find ourselves somewhat sort of enamored or um, perhaps even addicted to it. It's sort of like it starts off that we think that all this activity is um, actually what's going to solve my life. Before we encounter meditation, that's pretty common. We kind of get the story, we pick up the message that says, oh yeah, thinking more and better thinking, that's going to fix everything. And then if we look at our world, it doesn't take us long to figure out, let alone you know, just looking at our own lives, but looking at our world, thinking obviously doesn't solve all the things it imagines it might. In fact, sometimes it seems to be all our smart ideas turn out to be not quite so smart. And so we, we start to wonder, okay, maybe it's not all about thinking. And then we start to think, oh, oh, the problem is all the thinking. Now I've got to stop all the thinking, get rid of all that thinking. That thinking is uncomfortable and painful. It just keeps going on and on and on. As if it's the problem. And the truth is neither. It's neither the solution nor the problem. It's part of the field of our experience. And to learn to handle it is really essential. So the, 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 the cultivation of presence is learning to handle the patterning and reactivity of the mind and the heart in such a way that that patterning and that reactivity doesn't have the effect of disconnecting from it, disconnecting us from our experience, from our life, of distancing us from our life. So what we can notice is that when we, when we bring our attention into our experience, when we turn towards where we are initially, and sometimes it's a little bit hard to find where that is, sometimes we can connect with the, the sense of the body maybe the flow and ripple of sensations and the breathing and it feels clear and tangible and there's a sense of landing in that, resonating with that. And when that's possible for us, just allowing that quality to deepen, just that sensing of, okay, so what's it like here in touch with this? It's not that we have to have an answer to the question, but it's a way of turning fully towards it to not assume we already know what it's like. Or what the experience of taking a breath is. I mean, it's kind of miraculous that we're breathing. It's really complicated. I don't know if you've ever studied any biology, and I haven't, at least not for a long, long time. But it's really, really complicated what goes on to make this simple, it seems, organic process happen. That our body expands and draws in the air. And that our body relaxes and expels the air. And by the virtue of this body doing that, and have you noticed it does it all by itself? You don't actually have to do it yourself. It's really good because it keeps going even when you forget to pay attention. We can be lost in a story, sometimes five or ten minutes. If the breathing had stopped in that time, we'd be in real trouble. But somehow it just keeps going all by itself. And it's like, oh, okay, this is an amazing thing going. And sometimes it's like, wow, I really want to pay attention to it. And other times it's like, God, it's boring. I can't be interested in this. Sitting here, feeling my body, breathing. There's so many other things that seem more enticing, it seems. We're drawn to things that have an impact on us. That we feel strongly. And we live in a world that is moving more and more quickly in which the stimulus is getting stronger and louder and more intense and more particular. 
And as a result of that, we start to become desensitized, to handle the intensity of the information that we're confronted with, the intensity of the impact that's going on. If you ever go back and listen to an old version of a movie from the, well, say 70s, that's when I can remember watching movies, everything is really quiet and slow, it's completely boring. Even things that were really exciting back then, if I go and look at them, it's not that i am somehow become a connoisseur since then, unfortunately. Um, it's like, oh, actually, you know, when there was a gunshot, it was just a pop. Whereas now it's like a cannon going off that's much louder than an actual gunshot would be when we hear it on a movie. It's like we're collectively desensitized. That's part of what's happened. In the, in the seeking for stimulation and fulfillment, our world has kind of continued and accelerated in this way of impacting us. And the way our system deals with that is becoming less sensitive. So we're not unduly oppressed or impacted. To come into meditation, to engage in this process, is a process of actually starting to recalibrate. So at one level, we're having to begin to handle where there are strong impacts. And in this situation, mostly they'll be internal. They may also be around us, but thoughts, feelings, images emerge and they grab us. And we find ourselves leaning towards or leaning away from them, depending on whether they're offering something that seems attractive or maybe that we might find that would be enjoyable or pleasurable. Or, and then we, we find ourselves leaning towards. The story starts up about this. We start to, you know, we hear the sound of a bird and then we remember this sort of, this, uh, you know, early romantic relationship and the sound of the birds. And we're in this fantasy about how lovely this might be. And it's so much more compelling than just being present. And the story continues on a little bit and then we remember just quite how horribly all that relationship actually turned out. And even that's more compelling than being here. It's like, oh, oh, that was terrible. Why didn't it? Why couldn't we? How? how? Uh. And, and those worlds of, of past and future somehow seem to grab us. And it's really helpful just to take a moment, notice and breathe. And just, ah, oh, okay. To notice where we are, wherever we find ourselves, and to not to be judging, to not be criticizing, to not be hard or harsh with regard to ourselves for the fact that this happens. It's and the the sort of the, the metaphor that I, I find most useful for this is like training a puppy. If you've ever trained a puppy or perhaps other Creatures who might be trained also might be similar. But um, if you're training a puppy, a puppy needs to learn certain things to be able to live in a human world. And if you say to it, heal, and that's the strange word we use in general English to tell a puppy, follow my, I guess it means stand by my heel, or stand by my foot. We say heel, the puppy doesn't follow your heel, it just runs off. And if when it runs off, you grab it and put it back and say, heal, and it runs off again, you get angry with it. Say, what are you doing? I told you to heal. If you yell at it, or if you get angry with it, pretty soon the puppy thinks, it's a pretty unfriendly sort of person. I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can. And that's what it does. Our mind is like that. If we react with judgment or anger or aggression towards the activity of the mind, it makes the mind even more inclined 
to move away, to want to disconnect, to want to escape. Because the environment we're creating isn't particularly welcoming. Whereas if every time our mind goes somewhere, we say, oh, oh, you've gone there. Oh, okay, come back here. It's like inviting the public, come back and stay with me. Just come back here. Oh, oh, you've done that? Oh, you've done one of those? Oh my gosh, okay. Come back here. You know, sometimes the puppy likes to chase a butterfly. Sometimes it wants to smell a flower. Sometimes it wants to water the tree. Whatever it might do, our mind, just see, oh, it's done this. I'm here. In the moment of noticing what's happening, begin again. And to do so in a in a kind of a friendly and encouraging way. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, let's see what we can do here. Let's see what's possible. So much of our conditioning is oriented towards performance, towards being able to get it right, to do it well, to be better than we were the last time, or better than everyone else. And we might even find ourselves in some subtle sense of competition with, you know, how well am I, have you rated yourself, you know, where you are, where your sort of standing is in this particular thing sometimes we find our mind doing that it's like am i doing better than the others or am i doing worse you know am i moving more times than my neighbor have i coughed more frequently or less frequently or you know spaced out more or not we don't know how often they've spaced out of course but we know how often we have and sometimes that's an embarrassingly high number you know people often come into an interview and say hush you know i you know, I, I must have spaced out you know 20 30 times in the sitting and it's like i actually Great, you notice that you've done it. Because if you'd only done it once, it might mean you spaced out once and that was the whole sitting. So notice what happens with our mind. Even the word spaced out is a bit judgmental, isn't it? So, oh, actually we could say, oh, the mind went this way. We start to notice over time where it goes. But the practice of just gathering it back, of coming back, of bringing our attention back into our body, taking a moment to breathe, Noticing if there's any reaction to that, if there's any judgment, not making ourselves wrong for having a judgment about it or a criticism of our mind or a reaction to our mind, but noticing, oh, that's my mind as well. That's the mind reacting to the mind. Hmm, okay, that's what it does here. Can I just acknowledge the process? Can I just see what's happening and keep turning the attention back to where I am? to what's going on. And we start to see that this capacity we have for receiving experience is something remarkable. But it's easily overwhelmed and fragmented in its untrained state. The Buddha once observed, he said, I know of no one single thing that more conduces to suffering and unhappiness than an untrained mind, or heart-mind, I would say, would be the better translation of the word he used. This whole feeling, thinking, responsive capacity we have. I know of nothing, he said, that leads more to suffering, conduces more or conditions more suffering than an untrained heart and mind. And he said, and I know of no thing that more conduces to happiness and well-being and to the healing and ending of suffering. I know of no one thing that leads more to happiness than a well-trained mind and heart. And so this process of heart training, of mind training, 
that conduces to happiness is very much founded in this capacity to gather and collect the attention. A bit like a torch if we had a light source and it was always waving around. We, we didn't have a capacity to point it in a single direction and see what was there. It would be really hard to navigate in a dark room full of obstacles if we had a torch that just kept pointing in random directions. And our mind is a bit like that. If we see it, it's, oh, it's this way, this way, this way, this way. Always tending to be pulled to what seems to be loudest or what seems to have the most sort of familiar sort of attraction for us. But if we learn to hold it steady, then we start to see what's here. And this, this coming back again and again and again, it has the effect of gathering, steadying, and also focusing the light of the mind and heart. So we can start to see more clearly. There's a, there's a profound well-being that comes when the mind starts to gather. You might have had for moments maybe even on this first day, moments where you felt really present and connected. And there was a sense of, I'm really here. And we can feel in that moment, even just a few moments, how something in us responds with appreciation that recognizes something of value here. And we might also have noticed in such moments, and don't worry if you didn't have one or think you didn't have one, you might have just not noticed it when you had it. Because what often happens very quickly after we have a moment of connection, quiet or gatheredness is the mind comes in with a, great, I've made it, I'm here, I've got it. It's going to be really calm and peaceful from here on and I'm going to have a great retreat. And then at some point as we're telling the story about how wonderful it's going to be, we notice, oh, Oh, actually, I'm actually lost in thinking and excitement and grasping. And then we go, oh, no, actually, gosh, I've lost that I couldn't even be present for a moment. And we might go into another whole story about how, how, how we're not able to do this. And we see that we not only need to cultivate a quality of presence, but we need to understand our relationship to experience. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'll just before I go into that, the other thing I want to say that makes it challenging to be present, which was part of the territory of what I'll come to, this quality of presence is that it's like there isn't something we can hold on to. We can't get to the place where I'm present and stay there because it's a fluid situation. This capacity for being present, for being awake, is something dynamic and alive that can keep re-emerging or manifest in a way that sustains, but it doesn't sustain in a way that's fixed or in a way that somehow is based on taking hold of an experience. It, it comes much more out of a willingness to give ourselves to whatever is here, to allow that experience to be the foundation for connecting without it having to be the definition of what we're connected to. And as a result, being present doesn't tell us who we are. It tells us who we're not. Because none of the things that we connect with 
in themselves can define us. And therefore there's a there's a process of letting go that's involved in this quality of, of presence that's an ongoing letting go. So when we establish ourselves in being present, it's not through being able to hold on that we do so, but actually through being able to ongoingly release the tendency and the urge to take hold of whatever it is we're in contact with. And one thing I think we see, as I, I mentioned already, that there's really no peace, there's no ease or happiness and well-being if our mind is just at the mercy of all the stimulus around us and of the reactivity that might arise within us. And so the, the third area of, of training, of development that the Buddha pointed us to, that the Buddha invited as a, as a foundation for deep and abiding happiness and well-being, is the realm of wisdom, of understanding. And this is, a, this is a larger topic than I will endeavor to cover in detail in the context of this evening's reflections. But the sense of beginning to acknowledge that the process we're engaged with is not just about trying to get to some peaceful place, which is often the association we have with meditation, the sort of the sort of like, and it's interesting, isn't it, how the image of meditation has become sort of synonymous with bliss or peacefulness, and often used these days for advertise everything from sort of tropical cruises to bank mortgages. You know, you'll be at peace, and the image is someone meditating or looking like they're meditating. Anyway, I suspect they're probably not, but uh, who knows. And there's something of a fundamental reorientation that is asked of us or invited, that we're invited to explore. Because, as I said, the, the easy assumption and kind of almost agreed view in our culture, in our world, and therefore within our own sort of conditioned processes, is that it's the content of the experience that we're having that gives us happiness, and that happiness is found somehow through organizing, controlling, or manipulating experience. And we seek pleasure, we seek happiness, we seek security through trying to get or to keep the experiences we find pleasurable, enjoyable. And we likewise seek happiness and security by endeavoring to avoid or to get away from those experiences we find painful or uncomfortable. And those reactions are something that we need to look at, we need to consider, to understand. Because so far as we're caught in those reactivities, it's really hard to be deeply connected to where we are. And it's really not possible for us to see deeply into the nature of our experience. So as a beginning framework for understanding, we're invited to begin to look at where and how it is that we, we try and take hold of or to get or to keep certain kinds of experience. And there's so many ways in which we do that. And equally to notice where we're trying to avoid or escape or get rid of certain experiences.
as a fundamental contribution to our well-being and our happiness, learning to let things be as they are. Learning to let our urge to try and reorganize experience, to let that go. And see, what's it like if I just meet what's here? If I come back again and again to what's here? And we can see that our mind will tell us, you know, oh, you know, it'll be peaceful if my mind would just be quiet. It's the mind saying that. Or we might start to find ourselves sort of thinking about the day. Oh, and maybe this is something you've experienced. You know, we're sitting in meditation, we're thinking, Oh, well, that was good for a little while, but, you know, I think I think it would be better to do some walking now. Surely it would be more useful if we could end the sitting. You know, we've been here for ages. The person at the front must have fallen asleep, you know. But when when we come to end this, like we start leaning forward as if the walking would be the thing. And then we go to the walking, and oh, finally it's walking time. Whew, had enough of that sitting, you know. And then walking, and the walking's nice. It's outdoors, it's, you know, it's fresh and sunny and... And after a little while of walking, wow, this is boring. What am I doing here? It's pointless. It's not doing anything. You know, why do we have to do this? Look at these crazy people walking around slowly. You know, forgetting, of course, that we're one of them and, uh, and that. And they may be the sanest group of people you've ever had the good fortune to be amongst. But nonetheless, our mind will say things like this to us. And then, oh, maybe the next sitting. Oh, I can't wait to get to the sitting. They're walking, can't we? On and on. And it's like we keep projecting in front of ourselves that the next thing or the next experience will be what is actually going to work for me. And we stay out of balance, leaning forward. I think, lunch, lunch, it'll be lunch, lunch. I can't wait for lunch. And, of course, lunch can be lovely. Certainly mine was. I hope you enjoyed your lunch. I enjoyed mine. But it's really easy once you get your lunch and you enjoy the first few mouthfuls to start thinking about what comes next. Cup of tea, a walk, a nap. Whatever it might be. And seeing that movement of the mind. That there's this underlying story being told that says there's something better to be found somewhere else. And we're kind of looking for that. And of course it's understandable because the situation we're in, it's never perfect. You know, it's never going to be perfect, this the unfortunate news to hear that goes with that. But when we look, we can see, oh, you know, we'd like it this way, we'd like it that way. We've got our preferences, you know, how we'd like the food. The food was great, but it would have been nice if it was just a little bit this way or that way. Or maybe we notice, you know, the temperature. Well, it's quite pleasant, but actually it's a little bit cold. You know, I thought it was summer. We might find our mind going. You know, actually, if I if I actually pay attention, my hand is just mildly cooler than I like. And if I wasn't giving this talk, I'd probably be thinking, "What am I going to do to warm it up? I'd like to get that. I've put it somewhere in my pocket, warm it up." I'm not because I'm busy, distracted, or um, not distracted. Hopefully, but I'm engaged in something else. But if I wasn't, I'm sure that I'd be trying to work out how to get my hand to feel comfortably warm. It's not actually unpleasant. We're not in any ex- extreme way unpleasantly cold. It's not you know. There's no blue tinge, I don't think hypothermia is setting in, but um, it's just so easy for us to get caught in that trying to get things comfortable and make it all the way I want it. And the bottom line is that doesn't really work for us. If it did work, we'd have succeeded at it by now. 
So it's a little bit dispiriting to hear that. I thought I was going to come along and have a really nice experience. They didn't say that it wasn't going to be a nice experience in the meditation brochure that I read. And yet there's something else that happens when we start to open to, oh, this is how it is. Life is a mixture of this. Of all the things your life and my life have been filled with, lovely things and challenging things, sweet things and painful things, and a whole bunch of things that aren't really particularly sweet or painful. They're just kind of ordinary and normal, and mostly we ignore them. We don't pay attention to them. That's part of how we become desensitized. But what we might notice as we start to pay attention, as we start to feel into, as we allow ourselves to connect with where we are in those moments when we are present, and equally to connect with where we are in those moments when we've been caught in some reactivity, or we've been drawn to some pattern of thinking in the mind, and just notice what it's like. There's something that's actually quite sweet about the connection itself when we find it. Even if it's another relatively unexciting experience that's happening, but if we're connected with it. And when we disconnect from our experience, there's something painful about the disconnection itself. So, you know, when we're paying attention to our breathing, and sometimes it, you know, it feels a bit boring. You know, it's such a common thing people report. I get a bit bored with my breathing. Of course, your breathing won't be boring if you had an opportunity to consider that one day it'll stop. And you know, one day the out-breath will go out. And the in-breath just won't come in. And many people don't know which that breath will be when it's that last one. It doesn't come with a little sign that says, this is the last one, enjoy it. It just goes out. And the in-breath that always used to follow it doesn't happen. But we somehow forget that, don't we? We we kind of take we just assume it's going in, it's coming out, it's going to go out, it's going to come in again. And so far, it's worked because it has kept coming in. So it's kind of understandable we might make this mistake. And it kind of feels a bit boring, or we're kind of not interested in it. And yet, what would it be to become interested in this? To become interested not just in this breath, but in fact in everything. Because the very movement to chase one experience or push another experience away, that attempt to control and manipulate what we're impacted by, how we're being touched, has the effect of taking us out of ourself, out of our experience, into the thoughts and the fears and the hopes around how we could succeed at this endeavor. It's not to say there isn't times and appropriate places where we need to make some adjustment. Where if there's some degree of pain, for instance, in the body that feels like maybe it's actually no longer skillful and wise to sit in the posture, then it's okay to make an adjustment to our posture, as we've said. Or if perhaps there's something that's um, distressing emotionally for us, and sometimes it's useful to kind of turn our attention towards it, and sometimes it's actually helpful to back off and give it space to not put pressure on it or on ourselves. So I'm not saying we can't make choices about what we attend to, 
but not coming from a, an attempt to just avoid what is unpleasant or simply pursue what feels pleasant to us. Because to do so is to get caught and to be driven by the reactivity of the mind. That's ultimately something that we find has the impact on us of contracting, of tightness. And part of what I think for many of us we encounter when we come into a retreat is all the ways and the places in which we carry that contractedness, that tightness, that sense of being impacted by not just our life, but how we are in relationship to our life. So some of what begins to open up, and initially it opens up by our becoming aware of places of contraction and tightness in the body, that might be uncomfortable. And just to breathe with that, to see, can I soften around it? It's not that I can make it go away necessarily, and that's not our job, but can I make space for it and let myself be touched by what's here? This practice is not easy. You don't need me to tell you that, I don't think. It's kind of slightly counterintuitive and slightly confusing for some of us, I think, particularly when we begin. It's like, how can it be this simple? Just be invited to sit here and be present or walk back and forth or stand around for a little while. And it can be really hard. So I think it's important to know and to hear that yes it is because it's challenging at very fundamental levels a lot of our conditioning and our patternings that we may and most of us will have learned unconsciously as ways to respond and react to experience and that don't necessarily serve us although they may once have done. And so part of the process is actually just allowing ourselves to come into contact with all of this. Come into contact with what's going on here. So to be curious in terms of this, this quality of understanding, of panya, that is the Buddha's word for wisdom. This quality comes and is born from our interest and our care. That we, we're actually willing and courageous enough to look into the process, to see, oh, not trying to figure it out intellectually, but oh, to be curious, what's happening here? What's happening here? And we'll speak more about this as we, as we continue with the retreat. In the, initial <coughs> in the initial establishing of ourselves in the practice, the, this, this quality of gathering, of collecting, of coming back that's very much to do with the quality of presence and of samatha, of, of gathered and collectedness. This is kind of what we give more emphasis to in the beginning, but it still needs to be supported by this understanding of what's useful and skillful in the way we do that. And as we, as we find and as we deepen this capacity, and it does come, it does emerge, given time, given support. This is natural and ultimately unstoppable. This heart and this mind settles, gathers, collects, clarifies and brightens. And in this, we start to experience the capacity we have to abide in our life and to see clearly the nature of the processes that are unfolding and thereby to harmonize 
the way we engage with our life, the way we respond to it with what actually takes place and with what is actually skillful. And this quality of of wisdom and understanding together with presence is what really opens the human potential for the deepest happiness, for peace, for freedom, for awakening. And so this is what we're interested in, this is what we're engaged in. And this is what we practice here. So let's sit together for a few moments to finish. The Buddha once said of this teaching, this practice, this path, he said, this path is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. And the highest happiness is peace. So may we all in our practice here come to deepen in, in goodness, in presence, in understanding. for our own happiness, for our own peace, and for the happiness, the peace and the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.